You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to be here. And uh, we're starting a new sermon series today. As you can see, Jesus, I have my doubts. Often in the Christian church, Sunday morning uh, is um, kind of an exercise in whipping up uh, believism, as I would say. Um, people believing and believing in faith, uh, in faith itself, and sermons become just a motivational speech to get people to pick themselves up by their own spiritual bootstraps and do it again this week. Give more, be more, claim more, name it, claim it. No negative thoughts, no confessing anything that's negative, uh, just positive thinking and confessing that and holding on to those promises. And in large swaths of Christianity, whether you realize it or not, no one can really talk, you know, about their weaknesses or their waverings or any doubts that they have at all about anything. If you admit a negative thought, if you question anything, if you've got a little skepticism or if you're facing grief or sadness or you're wondering about stuff or you're a little depressed, well, all these are a sign of a weak faith, and therefore, uh, you are almost shunned, shunned. Some of you have probably experienced some of this stuff at times in your life when you've gone through difficult times, and then all of a sudden, nobody knows what to say, nobody's really there to support, and they almost don't want to hear from you. You know, it's just kind of like, you know... They're going to bless you from a distance, maybe. So in the church, I think there has been uh, a don't ask, don't tell policy. Does that make sense? A don't ask, don't tell policy. Um, don't ask if somebody's really doing okay. How are you doing today? And what's the response I want to hear from you? Okay. Fine. Or maybe, let's put it a little more spiritual, I'm blessed. Which doesn't really say anything, does it? I mean, yeah, of course, I'm always blessed, but how are you doing, right? And um, don't tell anybody any of your struggles. Don't even think about it. Don't bring it up. And I think, in other words, a lot of churches say, don't be human. Because we all have doubts, we all have, um, no one has a perfect faith, we all have times of sadness, we are all anxious, I worry, most of the time needlessly, right? We all have felt loneliness. And if you read the Bible honestly, you find it's filled with doubts and temptations and struggles and worry and depression and sadness and grief, and we're going to look at some of those stories in this series. And you'll find people like Moses and Elijah and Hannah and David and Miriam and Zechariah and Thomas and Peter and Paul and Euodia and Syntyche and John Mark. All of them, almost any character in the Bible, you'll find these struggles. So in this series, we're going to go kind of, I think, where our few churches have gone before. (laughs) Um, And that is... uh, Even though you've faced it all, we've all faced it, we just don't talk about it. We're going to explore the reality of our lives, but even the deeper reality of God's grace in Christ, where he meets us graciously in the midst of any of our doubts or our despair or our loneliness. 
He doesn't avoid us. He comes and is with us. For example, in, um, you maybe have never read this letter before, the letter of Jude. It's one chapter. It's a short book. And a short little snippet in the book, I think, says so much. Jude 1.22, Jude says, Be merciful to those who doubt. And do you know what? Jude probably did. He is the half-brother of Jesus. And Jude himself probably doubted because, well, you read in the Gospels that all of Jesus' brothers and sisters were wondering about him, wouldn't you? I mean, he's got a Messiah complex. (laughs) Well, yeah. But they doubted him. And so Jude understands doubt firsthand. I don't know if we Christians have really been merciful to those who doubt. But I think it's time that we do. And I think the more that Thrive as a community is merciful to one another, the more attractive we will be to a lot of people in our society. There are countless numbers of people in our community and world that are wanting to believe but struggle who want to belong but are afraid, who want to be loved and to be listened to, who want to have someone point them to the truth of a gracious God. But they are scared of Christians at times because, well, we're known to be a bit judgmental and a bit harsh and a bit, I don't want to hear it. Just tell me you're fine or that you're blessed. Don't tell me anything else. And it's time that we're open to each other. So we all need, by the way, what Peter Berger, he's a philosopher, so he came up with this principle. He he called it plausibility structures. It's kind of a weird phrase. But he's basically saying we need to be part of a community. We need to have a place where we can explore the plausibility of faith, the ability to believe that there are other people who are around us whom we can talk with and communicate who might have to believe for us when we're struggling and who are going to pick us up and encourage us and care for us. It's funny, but it's really hard for us to believe on our own. We really don't do a good job of that. We don't. I mean, I don't know if you saw in that video at the beginning uh, that I put together, um, most of the people that in that video were alone in the midst of their doubts. We come, uh, and a lot of us are when we're facing doubts, and we need community. We need those, I know, plausibility structures. What a philosopher. But we need community. We need others. We need those who will be merciful when we may doubt. So... That's why I love this story that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 9. It's actually a case study in doubt and what I call unfaith. Not faith, but unfaith. And what, I'll tell you about that later. But let's read that story first. It's Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, that is, now the they there is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They were up on the Transfiguration Mount. And they came back down to the disciples, the nine and the others around him. When they came, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. What a scene. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, 
I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it was, has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast, out, cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Great story. Great case study in what I said of doubt and unfaith. Okay? So we're going to look at these three points. First of all, the faith of the disciples, then the secondly, the doubt of the Father, and third, the offer of Jesus. The faith, notice it's in quotation marks, the faith of the disciples, our first point. Um, the disciples have faith, but the question is, what is their faith in, in this text? Why are they ineffective at this moment to cast out this demon in this situation? You see, back in the Gospel of Mark, just three chapters before, Jesus had given them authority. In Mark 6, 7, it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So they actually had that authority at one point in time. But here, why were they not able to deal with this? And notice how the father has come to find Jesus. Instead, he finds the nine disciples gathered together. And what's going on? <laughs> In Mark 9, 14, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. So these nine disciples are arguing with scribes and Pharisees. Probably you can only imagine what that argument's about. No, we're right, you're wrong. No, we're right, you're wrong. Back and forth, back and forth. And Jesus assesses is the whole situation of this chaotic scene that he enters into after the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says this, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Do you know who he's saying that about? Not the father of the son, not the son himself, not the scribes necessarily, his own disciples. They were the faithless ones. They had a faith, but it was really an unfaith. They had faith in their own faith, in themselves, in their own ability. They had cast out demons before. They had seen God's power. They assumed they could just do it whenever they felt like it. They were in control of it. And that is actually unfaith. William Lane, in his book, um, 
in his gospel commentary in the Gospel of Mark says this, the disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift they had received from Jesus in chapter 6-7 was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. This was a subtle form of unbelief, for it encouraged them to trust in themselves rather than in God. I'm hoping this sinks in, because let me tell you, you will hear, I think, many preachers and many versions of Christianity in the United States right now that fit in with what the disciples were doing, okay? I've heard many preachers, and yes, I have preached too many times myself, but um, I've heard many preachers that preach on faith. You have to have faith. You better believe faith is what you need. Don't doubt. Don't ever let... any negative confession come out of your mouth because your words make it real. Pray believing you have been healed and you will be healed. If you don't feel it or sense it at the moment, doesn't matter. Pray it, prayerize it, actualize it, visualize it, pictureize it, and it will be so. One, of these kind of prosperity preachers that has become extremely popular in the United States, the father of it all, even had this quote, he said this many times, the law of faith acts as a universal causal agent, a power that actualized events and objects in the real world. In other words, it's your faith that makes everything happen. That's actually a quote from a book by Kate Bowler called Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. A great read, a little sobering. She herself struggled with this whole name it and claim it kind of theology that you visualize the reality, you hold on to a promise, you claim it, and then don't ever, ever let go of it. And I would say Jesus would look at this kind of talk about faith and say, oh, unbelieving generation. It's unfaith. True faith is not faith in itself. True faith doesn't believe in its own power. True faith doesn't even care about itself. True faith continually looks outside of itself. Faith has no power in itself, according to the New Testament. I mean, it's so amazing. Jesus says something as simple as this. You don't even need much faith at all, just a little mustard seed, and it can cause great things. He's not saying, look at how great your faith is, and that's what does it. It's the power of God, the power of the gospel, the power of God's promises. So that's why Timothy Keller puts it this way. Helplessness, not holiness, is the first step to access the presence and power of God. And here's another problem, why I am so... so struggle with when I hear people just focusing on faith all the time. Because when you preach faith, you actually are starting to preach works. In other words, you turn faith into something you better do, and then you do your part, and then God will do his part. Make a deal. That is not faith at all, according to the Bible. Not at all. It's unfaith. You believe more in yourself and your power to get God to do what you want him to do. Whereas in the book of Ephesians, I think Paul states very, very clearly what faith is. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, that is faith, is not, a, not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so no one can boast. Faith is a gift. It's not a work. I can't boast about the faith that I have. It's a gift from God. You preach faith, and what you do is you start turning people back onto themselves. You preach Jesus, and then people can have faith. Isn't that interesting? And that's why Jesus said at the end of this, when they asked, well, why couldn't we do anything? He said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So prayer, it's not looking inside yourself. It's depending fully on God. It's not claiming anything for self. Fascinating. Do you realize what Jesus is also saying? So you disciples... Um, you didn't even pray. You just try to cast the demon out on your own. Duh, that's not going to work. That's unbelief. That kind of faith is unfaith. But now let's look at what most people think is the real center of the story and why, oh, Jesus is, and that's the doubt of the Father. When you look at the Father often in this text, before I read, really kind of dug into this text this week, I always thought, oh, that's the problem. The Father has, you know, belief and unbelief, and he's struggling with that, and that's sort of the issue. But what you finally get is that he's not the real problem. It was the disciples. Because, honestly, from childhood, his son had fallen into this situation where he was totally helpless. As a father, he could do nothing about his son. Um, It went beyond what we might consider epileptic grand mal seizures. It included a demonic element that would cast him into fire and into water. And the father tried. I'm sure this father for years had taken him to every rabbi, every priest, to the temple, to the synagogue, wherever he could. He probably even looked outside of Israel, outside of uh, Judaism, to something, anything. He was so desperate and helpless helpless in this situation. And then he comes to Jesus. And what does he find? He finds his nine disciples arguing with the scribes. And let me tell you, it was probably not a pretty scene. I think the father got to see their ignorance and foolishness because a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors trying to argue with a bunch of scholars of the Bible about the Bible is one of the stupidest things you can do. Do you know what I mean? It's like, don't even try. So Jesus comes back to the situation. And so the father is like, well, if your disciples couldn't do anything, I'm not sure if you can. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It is easy for us all when we face a situation where either death or sickness or, or evil in this world is so powerful that we think that it's hopeless or helpless, uh, we wonder if anything can change. We believe in this situation. William Lane puts it this way in, the gospel, in his uh, commentary here. In its struggle with temptation, faith must always free itself from the disastrous presumption of doubt. That is, man, this is real, you know. Um, in the certainty that With God, nothing is impossible. And that his majesty becomes most visible when human resources have become exhausted. Jesus thus calls for that faith which bows its head before the concealed glory of God. 
You know, it's easy for me to believe God is uh, great and good and gracious when times are good in my life. It's easy for me not to have, to have much faith when I'm in good health. It's easy when I have a paycheck, job, and security. I don't need much faith when my refrigerator is full and the pantry is stocked, right? But that's not, faith is not about my circumstances. It's not about my human resources or human capital. It's not about how good human beings can be to each other, even though that can be the case. Have you ever noticed, um, probably have, almost every national newscast, every local newscast ends with a human interest story, a feel-good moment, and their whole point is, hey, we've just made you despair for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> the world's going to hell in a handbag, but now, hey, you can. There is good in human beings, and look at how good they can. That's not the kind of faith you actually need in this world, okay? Though it's great to see those stories and how chair, you need faith in God. And that's what's remarkable of this dialogue with Jesus and this father. Mark 9, 21 to 24, Jesus asks, how long has this been going on? And he says, well, from childhood. And it not only, you know, it casts him into fire and into water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on and help us. And Jesus then responds, if you can, everything is possible. And then the father responds, I believe, but help my unbelief. The father's honest. He's bluntly honest about himself. He believed, he also has unbelief. He's confused, he's struggling. And Jesus says, I can work with that. That's the kind of faith I can work with. Isn't that amazing? He heals the son. If he were a modern faith preacher today, he would say, oh, well then, you better go away and figure out how you're going to strengthen your faith before you ever come back and you've got to claim and you've got to have total positive thoughts about this and have a positive confession. How can you ever expect anything unless you first, right? No. Jesus says, I can work with that. That's the kind of faith God can work with. It's not faith in self. It sees its own inability I can't even believe, you know? I think um, Martin Luther, when he explained the third article of the Apostles' Creed, he says, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, <laughs> or come to him. But the Holy Spirit, you know, calls me by the gospel. Isn't that amazing? I believe I can't believe. You don't have to get rid of your doubts to come to Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> you can bring your doubts to him. Your doubts are not the problem. It's what you do with your doubts that's the problem. Do you harbor them? Do you hold on to them? Or do you just say, Lord, I've got doubts. Do you offer them to Jesus? Doubts can actually bring you to a deeper level of faith 
because they make you explore and go like, what is it that I really believe? How does this work out? How are so many bad things happening in a world and a good God still, you know, how does this fit? You can actually grow in your faith through having some doubts if you offer them to Jesus and honestly explore them. And beyond that, what's amazing in this text is the Father doesn't just offer, I believe, help my unbelief. He actually offers his son, his most precious thing in his whole world, I believe, to Jesus. This might be one of the scariest parts of this message, if, uh, and that is if you want to really handle life, your journey throughout this life, you need to bring to Jesus what's most precious to you, even if it looks like, as this story that Jesus is going to make things worse. Because that's what happens in this story. For a moment, it gets worse, not better. Things go down, not up. Just think of that if you had a child with this experience going on since childhood, and you have tried everything, you've gone to every rabbi, you've prayed, you've you've given offerings, you've done this, you've done that. Your whole focus has been on this child and trying to figure out what to... Is this not probably his most precious possession in life, his own child? And what happens in this text is that when Jesus encounters this child... The convulsions are even worse than ever, more violent than ever. Jesus calls out. The demon comes out of him, but he looks like he's dead as a corpse. It's worse for a moment. Jesus, in a sense, and Mark is very deliberate about this, that this is a death-resurrection event. He deliberately uses this language to describe it, because that's what Jesus does. He puts to death some of the most precious things in your life and raises them up even better than before. Now, you might be going like, oh, my goodness. Now I don't know how I could have that kind of faith that this father did. I'm riddled with doubts and inner conflict. Last thing I want to do is be out of control of a situation. If I want to bring to Jesus something, I just want, I want to hold on to it and just say, you bless it and bring, give it back to me the way it just a little better. I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. How in the world are you going to ever, ever, ever be able to do this? And that's our third point. The offer of Jesus. Talk about death and resurrection language, right? When you see how God offers Jesus, how God gives his most precious gift to this world. When you see that God is the one who puts his own son to death, when you see Jesus totally out of control being nailed to his own cross, when you see him willingly go to a place that he has never known, where he is separated from his father's love, he experienced agony and abandonment himself, When he becomes sin, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, when he knew not even a sin at all, when you see God opening himself up this way, that he gives his faithful son to a faithless generation, 
when you realize how vulnerable and sacrificial your God is for you, when he looks at you and considers you his most precious treasure to give up everything for you, that's when you can start to offer him whatever is precious in your life. When God becomes the most precious thing because of how he calls us and treats us, that's when Abraham is able to offer up Isaac. That is when Mary gives up her own reputation and her own plans for a wonderful future and says, I am your handmaid. Be it done to me according to your word. That is when Peter gives up his own freedom and walks the way of the cross. That is when Paul gives up his entire law-abiding uh, reputation and says it's all trash because of the beauty of knowing who this is, Jesus, the most precious gift of all. He was put to death for me and raised to life for me. Jesus, I have my doubts. And Jesus would say, but I still have you. I'm going to hold on to you through those doubts. You're mine. You're my precious possession. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you this day. Uh, we are amazed. We are amazed that you showed such compassion to this father and this son. <laughs> We relate so much more <laughs> to the, the nine disciples who argue and bicker and get so full of themselves. Forgive us, O oh Lord, <laughs> when we think faith is all about us, when it's really just looking to you for all good things. Lord, you know our doubts. You know our insecurities. You know our weaknesses. And you still call us your very own. We thank you for that, that we are saved by grace Lord Jesus, we pray today that you would um, be so central to whatever Thrive does and whatever our lives are about, that our focus would be on you and not ourselves. And Lord, we offer to you now some people in our church and in our concern and community that need your love and care. We thank you for Mikey's progress in her uh, recovery from knee replacement. We pray that you'd strengthen her this day. We lift up to you, Jim, as he uh, continues his recovery from COVID and other ailments. We ask, O oh Lord, that um, you'd be with Wayne as he is going. Uh, he has traveled now back to Wisconsin for a biopsy, and to be with Sue as she, um, her, you know, as uh, his wife. Um, and having a nursing background, Lord, understands the medical issues. We just pray your healing and that you are glorified. You strengthen their faith in a very difficult time, that the doubts they can offer them to you, their worries, they can place them at your feet, and that you will meet them right there. Lord God, we also lift up to you, Tom, this day, that you would protect him before and after and during uh, the procedures this week and bless those, Lord, according to your will. And for us here, Lord, in, our, um, in just our dailiness, in our daily life, you know our anxieties and our fears and our doubts. 
We're going to offer those to you as well as just our whole lives because you, Lord Jesus, have given everything. And Father, you have given up your own son to us, the most precious thing ever, just to have us. We're amazed, Lord God. And Father, as uh, we prepare to receive um, the gift of your Son again in the Lord's Supper, as we are reminded of his agony and death and resurrection, Lord, we pray that you soften our hearts towards you in so many ways and transform our lives so that we live more in trusting you, Lord Jesus, and loving others as you see fit. We pray, too, as we uh, receive our offerings in just a moment, that you would bless that. And as we offer our best to you, Lord, all we're doing is trying to, in a feeble way, to give you thanks for what you've already given. We can never outgive you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for all of these things. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.